Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ian Begg. I'm at the European Institute of the LSE. It's my great pleasure this evening to welcome European Commissioner for Regional Policy, Johannes Hahn. We're not going to have the standard kind of set-piece speech followed by questions and answers, but rather have a more general conversation. And the way I want to proceed this evening is to allow the Commissioner sometime at the beginning to present some of the ideas of the new regional policy that's being put forward in Brussels. It runs from 2014, that's this year, up to 2020. And then we'll have a series of questions. We'll try to provoke him. We'll try to get uh, difficult reactions out of him, some of the, the awkward questions around regional policy. And I count on your help in doing that. Now, let me first introduce the Commissioner. He is, as you know, uh, one of uh, the outgoing college, but uh, my spies in Brussels tell me it's not impossible that he might come back in a, in a, in a new guise in the new commission, but uh, we'll leave that to one side for, Steve the, for the time being. He's a member of the European People's Party, and for those of you who don't know the acronyms, that's the right of centre grouping in the, in the European firmament. And therefore, I think you're vice president, is that right, of the EPP and EPP grouping? And therefore is influential in who's going to succeed Barroso as the new commission president. So watch this space. Johannes Hahn is a, was formerly the minister of science and research in the Austrian federal government, which, if, for those of you that know Austria, is an important post. The Austrians are very keen on their research. They have all these fancy research institutions dotted around the country. He has a background in business, including being one of the, the leaders of the Austrian employers' organizations at an earlier point in his career. And I'm sure he has plenty to tell us about uh, the way things are evolving in Europe. But we'll come to that later, because I want the, the first part of the discussion to be on the European regional policy issues. So without further ado, may I ask you to welcome uh, Commissioner Hahn in the customary manner, and then we'll, we'll proceed with the discussion. So what I suggest we do, Johannes, is if you give a short introduction to how EU regional policy or cohesion policy more generally is evolving and what you see as the, the new developments that uh, you want to draw to the attention of the audience. Yeah, thank you very much, Ian. Thank you for the invitation uh, tonight uh, to explain a little bit uh, the reformed uh, European structural funds and in particular the regional policy. What's about uh, the reform of regional policy? I mean, in the past, we had these structural funds for decades, until the period, financial period 2000-2006, uh, everybody only took care about the correct uh, financial use of the money, but nobody took care how the money was spent. In 2007, uh, my predecessor started to align the use of the money to some strategic uh, 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 ideas, and it was uh, decided to try to align part of the money to the Lisbon strategy, which more or less uh, uh, was, uh, could, could be achieved. Uh, Two-thirds of the money should be aligned in the old members, by the old member states uh, uh, on an obligatory basis, whereas uh, the newer member states uh, did it uh, voluntarily, and it uh, worked out quite well. In the new financial perspective from 2014 to 2020, 
we further evolve the policy and try to modernize it. And uh, what is the main objective of the policy today? Still, the historic uh, task of uh, regional policy is to reduce the disparities uh, amongst the uh, regions in Europe. We count 274 regions, and you can imagine there are different welfare levels. Uh, the, the, the richest uh, region is, uh, is in the city of London, which is not really a surprise. The poorest is uh, probably one region in Bulgaria. Maybe nowadays it's Mayotte, uh, one of our uh, outermost regions uh, in the Indian Ocean. But um, uh, this is the traditional task of the policy, to reduce the, the, the disparities in the, in the welfare level. But the other, more future-oriented task, and this is probably something we should and could discuss tonight, is uh, the task of the policy to implement European objectives, European strategies. Uh, in the past, we had several European strategies. Think about the Lisbon strategy, and there is kind of common sense. I wouldn't say the strategy failed, but it was not so successful as it should be. And why? Because there haven't been any financial instruments, financial means to pursue the goals, the objectives agreed in these strategies. Nowadays, we have our Europe 2020 growth agenda and growth strategy, which means there are very concrete quantifiable results which should be achieved by the end of the decade. And for the first time, we will have now an instrument on hands uh, to follow this uh, European main objectives. And uh, if we wouldn't have any financial means for all the uh, 274 regions, only for the poorer ones, which count for around 25% uh, uh, of the regions, we would never uh, achieve our goals. So in order to address poverty, to increase R&D, to increase employment, to increase the number of tertiary graduates, uh, it's necessary to address it everywhere in Europe. Or increase of renewable energy, energy efficiency, all these are topics, issues, uh, which have to be addressed around Europe in order to achieve our European goals. And for that purpose, we need a financial instrument, and this, are, and this is a regional policy. These are the structural funds. And in order to guarantee a sound, smart, and sustainable um, investment, uh, we have modernized our tools in the way that, um, first of all, we have, and we are just in the... In the, in the um, in the face of negotiating with our member states and regions the programs for the new financial period. So all our member states and regions have to agree with us quantifiable results which have to be achieved by the end of the period. In order to guarantee the fulfillment of these goals, we have introduced what we call ex-ante conditionalities, conditionalities which have to be fulfilled in order to guarantee as a, a, a swift uh, uh, implementation of the project. I'll give you two examples. In the past, there have been a lot of infrastructure investments in highways, 
um, 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 railways, ports, airports, whatever you like. Uh, but every of these projects uh, was an individual one. In the new financial perspective, it's clear that there must be, for each member state, a comprehensive transport strategy, which includes all the different transport <coughs> modes. So it's no longer possible that there's an individual project disconnected from a strategy. So clearly, in the new financial perspective, uh, uh, projects follow strategy. And the same applies for smart specialization strategy, which we will later on probably discuss what it means. It's nothing else, in, in a nutshell, that the region should be aware about their economic potentials, about their strengths, about their USPs, and then we would like to invest exactly in those areas in order to strengthen an already strong muscle or to further uh, develop something which is already there. And uh, thirdly, um, it's um, uh, about thematic concentration. It's no longer possible that the money is used for everything and everywhere, but member states, regions have to make uh, choices and to concentrate their investments on a few areas. It's like a, a very comprehensive menu. Uh, everybody has uh, agreed about this menu, but now it's up to the regions, the member states, to make their choices, to make their tailor-made menu and uh, to offer it to their people. And this will guarantee, uh, I'm pretty sure, a strong development uh, of regions and uh, if, we, if you think about the economic performance, in particular of uh, southern or eastern European member states, you will certainly agree with me that there is a need to have a more strategic approach in order to improve the performance of that regions. And if we are doing so, also the economy here in Great Britain is uh, benefiting because uh, there are a lot of uh, market opportunities for British companies in other European countries. More than 50% of the export of uh, British companies uh, goes to other European uh, member states, and in particular to the emerging markets of the newer member states. So if we are succeed to improve uh, the economic uh, performance of these countries, it's a strong a contribution to the better performance of the British economy. And this is something where you can see uh, the relationship between the different elements, the dependency amongst the member states, and the potential, what it means to have a strong, unified uh, Europe. I would like to stop at uh, this uh, point, and uh, I think we should uh, continue to discuss. Okay. Um in case it's not obvious, anybody who wants to Twitterize on this, there is a hashtag there for you, LSE Han. We learned at the weekend that uh, Britain is in the vanguard of those countries with a large number of Eurosceptics. But there's a second tendency in Britain, which is Eurocynics. My first question, therefore, to you, Johannes, is the following. You described all these grand new ideas but are they not simply old wine in new bottles? First of all, also in practice, I can tell you old wine is something which tastes quite well. But um, 
should not do too old, yeah. <laughs> quite, uh, Especially when it comes to the noisy, does it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, indeed, and also the red one is a good one in the meantime. But um, I think it's uh, important to, to, to explain that we have really modernized the policy. And once again, in the past, it was simply to offer money and member states could use it as uh, they liked it or not. And there were some, I wouldn't say misuses, but uh, one can certainly discuss one or the other kind of investment. Uh, and nowadays, we are much more focused. Uh, we are much more committed to our joint European ideas, uh, 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 aims, and goals. And we have to find uh, ways and means to follow this. And therefore, we have this... Uh, policy, and once again, I think the, the most important idea is, or the most relevant idea is uh, that uh, in the future, more than in the past, it will be that financial instrument of the European Union to follow European goals. European goals which are agreed, adopted by all the member states, by the European Parliament, by the national parliaments, it's not something which is uh, the outcome of some bureaucrats in Brussels, but it's the final agreement uh, of all our member states, including uh, UK. I can tell you, preparing the new financial perspective, in particular in terms of the content of the policy, the British administration, the, the civil servants in the British administration dealing with the structural funds played an eminent important role, and the contribution was an extremely valuable one. Uh, of course, there was in general a political disagreement uh, about the fact should regional policy apply to all the regions. But when it was once decided, there was a rather pragmatic approach by the British government, by the British administration, and they contributed a lot in terms of the future outlook of the policy, and that's why I'm quite happy to have them on board, and uh, it was a very valuable um, involvement and uh, contribution. But a regular question from Britain, and sometimes also from Sweden, the Netherlands, and one or two other countries, is what is the sense of our government sending money to Brussels so that Brussels can give it back to us with strings attached? I can tell you <clears throat> I'm now 52 months in office, and I, <laughs> you mean well kept or what? <laughs> uh, I have never met a regional politician, neither in England, Wales, Scotland, the Netherlands, Sweden. I'm focused on, 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 on these very critical uh, member states where the regional politician uh, was confident enough that uh, the national level would spend money to the regions. Uh, meaning, if uh, one would uh, renounce on these European funds and give the money directly to the regions, regions don't trust their national government that this would uh, happen. This is one thing. The second thing is... Uh, that we offer a financial perspective for seven years, which is, uh, I think, we are the only uh, 
political uh, unit in the world which has a, a financial framework uh, um, for seven years, which uh, gives a guarantee not only to public investors but also to private investors upon the money being available, to which conditions, for which purposes. And finally, and this is the most uh, serious uh, answer, once again, we need a policy, we need a financial instrument which allows us to follow European objectives, European goals. And in that respect, it's a kind of necessary investments of all the member states in order to achieve common goals, common goals to which uh, also UK has committed itself. Okay, I, I take the point, and I've seen the, the press releases which describe cohesion policy as the Commission's investment policy. And I know that uh, your budget is the biggest of all the, <clears throat> all the lines of the European budget, except maybe in some years your Romanian colleague in agriculture slightly exceeds you. However, if, if the, the, the new purpose of cohesion policy is to be the investment policy of the European Union, and it has all these themes that you mentioned, the, the climate change theme, the innovation theme, transport infrastructure theme, is that still consistent with the treaty obligation to improve the position of the least developed regions, to reduce regional disparities? Is, or is there a risk of confusion between these multiple objectives? <coughs> First of all, I would like to, to, to explain a little bit why investment, because uh, in the past and even in the present, uh, sometimes people, politicians, claim that the policy should be a policy of uh, solidarity. Uh, the, the aspect of solidarity is still um, valid, and it is uh, also... Um, we are respecting it. We are respecting it in the, in the way that uh, 70 percent of the budget is spent, is provided to 25 percent of our regions, which are the poorer ones. But the way how the money should be used, how the money should be spent, should follow the idea of investment orientation, meaning that uh, if you invest in something, you expect to get out more than you have invested, not only in financial terms, but also in uh, um, satisfaction of people, happiness of people, however you might call it. Because one of our, of our main objectives is to give people an economic perspective uh, to live and to stay in all the regions of Europe, wherever they like to stay, and to have a personal uh, economic perspective. Coming back to your question, once again, um, the task of the treaty is to overcome disparities. That's true. That's the obligation to contribute to cohesion. And that's why we spend, once again, 70% of the budget in less developed regions. But on the other hand, we also have the obligation, and this is the new dimension of the policy, to follow uh, to, to contribute to the implementation of uh, common European objectives. And once again, these objectives are agreed, are adopted by all our member states. So if member states agree that we should 
do more, for instance, in terms of energy efficiency, they also should give us the means at hand to follow these ideas and to implement them. Otherwise, we would fail. And then we would face criticism that we haven't been able to implement what has been agreed. So if you want, say, A, consequently, you have to do B. Well, you'll be pleased to hear that we try to explain to our students that cohesion policy is an allocation policy and not a redistribution one, in spite of people like the president of Bocconi University saying that it's distribution, or Andri Sapir and other luminaries in the European firmament. I think at this stage I'm going to ask for a uh, first couple of questions from the audience and then maybe come back if there's a lull. So let's start here and then go to Robert. I'll take two, two initial questions, if that's okay. To, to Mr. Han, I'm Mr. Stefano Bonf, I think we met some other time. And I'm proud of your approach on uh, this new policy for Europe on strategic leading approach for the regions. Based on this concept, I did develop some kind of innovative startup company focusing on smart strategies, we say specialization approach. Now, my, the problem I face it, there are two actually. How to link the strategy to the implementation? Now, the linkage, what we developed, is based, as, as I mentioned many times, is related with, if you don't have the data, if you don't have an analytical platform, if you don't have, uh, let's say, a strategic approach developed according to the data and the knowledge, you cannot identify a strategy. You cannot identify, you cannot implement. So for us, the linkage is this, we say, big data analytical platform. Yesterday I was in Brussels, and uh, we are discussing about this new concept of big data analytics. How let's say different DG can implement this new emerging technology. Now, it's very much according to your policy of developing smart, we can say, strategy, say specialization at the core of the cohesion policy. But it's this kind of linkage. And then we find a lot of difficulties to implement pilot project in member state. And this is because of you, you need a lot of educational question, aspect. Educational. In a way, let's better understanding what are, how the strategy is developed, how you implement it, how you monitor it in real time. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Um, I think, why don't you give a quick answer to that question and we'll move on to another in case it's a different subject. Once again, it's about uh, analyzing the situation in each of our regions. There are methodologies on hand. Uh, we have uh, this uh, joint research uh, center in Sevilla, which offers a lot of, uh, of techniques. Um, of course, it's about data, uh, but finally, it's also about simply that uh, representatives in the regions, not only politicians, but also stakeholders, representatives from uh, employer and employee associations, other NGOs, etc., are sitting together, identify their potentials, and finally, it's not only to invest in certain businesses and startups, of course, but it's also to provide necessary educational facilities, also research innovation facilities. I have studied in the Netherlands a system in Brabant. They call it triple helix. One could say 
It's not only a triple, it's a quadruple uh, helix, which means the, the smart cooperation between the business sector, the academia, um, the, the, the research area, but also uh, the public sector. So it's about a close cooperation to identify the potentials, and I can tell you I have visited many areas, many regions in Europe, also remote ones, and uh, which often at the first glance is a disadvantage to be rather remote, could be and is finally an advantage because it's your USP to be in that particular location and you have to, out, to make something out of this uh, particular situation. And uh, if you like, I can give you a lot of examples, for instance, from the island of the Azores, which have decided to be that hub in the Atlantic for serving uh, the international, um, um, uh, how to say, um, uh, ship, uh, um, the, the international uh, navigation, international navigation, and uh, uh, to follow up uh, the, the the tracks of the ships, etc. But also to serve if there are any needs, maintenance, etc. So they have identified their potentials, and it's rather logic that an island or a group of islands in the middle of the ocean can serve exactly that purpose and not a region in the middle of the continent. So it's up to the individual um, uh, regions to identify their potentials. And based on that, we should have our investments. I quite like the idea of Burgenland being the area that does the transatlantic shipping. <laughs> Robert, a uh, fellow EPP member. I'm a former member of the European Parliament and indeed in the EPP, which I, if I was elected today, I would insist on joining too, I would tell you. But the point that, and I was also chairman of the Regional Policy Committee later on of the Economic and Social Committee, the point that I would make is actually rather to agree with, with Ian. I always agree, of course, with Ian, but um, I do see actually a consistency uh, and, and more of a development. And I was slightly concerned, actually, when I saw on the board there from subsidy to strategic investment, because there was really always a strong feeling the last thing the policy should be seen as a sort of subsidy. It's not there to revive defunct coal mines or tin mines or whatever. Um, and... I think one should also bear in mind, which people do forget, the policy actually came from British um, accession to the EU. It was promoted by the then Prime Minister and the need, which I do remind the present government, the need that the programme should be seen as a European one, although it would be largely concentrated on the purer, poorer countries, there should be some policies in the poorer individual parts of the, the, the wealthy countries. The point that I was going to ask you, what I always thought was, and I suppose looking at your map here of the United Kingdom, we still have Cornwall, we still have South Wales. Wales. Um, does a point come where you have to say, look, if it is still in that state, we should have a radical program, a, a different program? I notice you've still got the basic concept relating to unemployment over a, uh, not unemployment, uh, economic um, growth over a certain, below a certain point. 
um, they automatically come in. But I'm wondering if it needs more fundamental gripping, the whole question of why certain regions are continually there. Okay, we hold, hold the question on eligibility criteria. We have another question over here. Lady in green. Hi, my name's Alison Partridge. Um, I do quite a lot of work with the Urbact programme. So I'm here asking a question on behalf of the cities, really, and obviously we're very pleased that now it's regional and urban policy. Um, so my question is about what Europe cities can do so that the new emphasis on strategic investment and fund integration enables them to grow more and better jobs for young people. Okay, so that is two questions around eligibility and the thrust of the policy, so maybe take them together. I think, once again, I would like to stress exactly, probably that's why my, my people, together with Ian, I don't know exactly, have uh, chosen this uh, title from subsidy to strategic investment. Once again, we have, we have been able to overcome this, um, this uh, idea that it's a policy uh, which is subsidizing. Once again, the clear aim is to be an investment policy. And this is uh, the great difference. Um, concerning uh, the regions you have mentioned, uh, I think uh, uh, Wales and the West Valleys, or, um, I think this is the name of the region. West Wales and the Valleys. West Wales and the Valleys. Uh, they, they really worked hard to, 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 to improve, but I think finally they have been hit uh, by, by the crisis, so they didn't manage to... to uh, to be in, the, in, in, in a different uh, category of region. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I think they, they, they did a good job. Uh, but once again, uh, the new concept of the policy in order to identify really the potentials, the strengths, and to invest much more in the promotion of the economy will certainly lead to a better performance of the region in the future. I'm quite confident. But one has to admit, fortunately, the other regions don't sleep. They also try to improve their situation, their performance. So there is a kind of race or competition, if you like. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I think the analytical capacity we can offer uh, by our services, together with uh, external experts, will certainly help uh, uh, to improve the situation also in this uh, part of Wales and also in Cornwall. Uh, <clears throat> concerning the cities, well, um, uh, cities play a more and more important and decisive role for uh, societal development. And all the European main objectives I have just uh, described uh, uh, can only be achieved if we address it uh, in cities. And by the way, Europe after Latin America, is the most urbanized um, continent in the world. Depending on the definition, one could say that up to 75% of the European population is living in cities or towns. So if we would like to improve our energy performance in terms of saving energies, reduce poverty, increase uh, employment, uh, uh, having a higher R&D rate. Everything can only be achieved if we do it in cities. Uh, 
already in the uh, previous period, we spent 40% of our budget in regions, and we expect to, to spend 60 to 70% of our budget in the new financial perspective in regions or urban agglomerations. But it's important to understand there is no contradiction between cities and the rural area. Usually cities are the, the center of a region and for the development of a region it's decisive how the city is performing, how attractive is the city, is the regional center of, is the center of a region. And that's why we have to invest not only in metropolitan areas but in urban areas in general and uh, the challenge we only face is that uh, if you look around Europe, uh, we have a different uh, constitutional setting, if you like. We have still a majority, I would say a huge majority of member states, where we, which are still rather centralized. And we have a minority of member states where there is already a very mature level of decentralization, and that includes the rights, the responsibilities of uh, cities to manage their, their tasks by themselves. For instance, the, the mayor of Dublin is appointed every year, uh, and it's always a different one. There's a kind of rotating principle. So you can imagine the tasks of a mayor and the duties of a mayor in Dublin are not very, there are not very many of them. Same applies for the mayor of Athens or Thessaloniki in Greece. Uh, this is why we had to, um, to, uh, to accept that we could not obligatory uh, ask our member states to give, mem to give regions, uh, sorry, to give cities the opportunity to manage part of the money by themselves. Because in some of our member states, cities don't have the capacities, don't have the admi administrative uh, capacities, the managerial capacities, and therefore it's not uh, uh, possible to delegate it to cities. But I personally believe one of our, our further developments in Europe must be to have a further decentralized uh, uh, situation all around Europe, to have a minimum level of responsibilities on the city level, on the regional level, and this is certainly a discussion we will face in the, in, uh, in the coming few years. Okay, we another question here, then one at the back, take two together again. <coughs> Uh, my name is Richard Wakeford. I'm the director of a research centre in a Russian university, but I have a question from an English perspective. Um, and it's probably the other side of the coin from what you've just uh, said about cities. Um, but I just wanted to agree with the line that you were taking when you said earlier about uh, it was necessary for the money to go to Europe so that it came back in a way that it was applied in a consistent way 
between European nations. And I don't think anybody in the British government should complain about that because the British government itself has imposed a duty to cooperate on local authorities when they do their development planning so that local authorities get together. And so the same principle is being applied by the British government as the European Commission has been doing. So I don't think there should be any complaint about that. My question, though, is this. Um, by focusing on urban areas and focusing on the cities, what's missing from your, corporate, your comprehensive approach is rural development because the funds for rural development are in a different DG and are being applied in different ways. And that wouldn't matter so much if at the regional level it got joined up again. But the early experience I'm having in working in the rural areas in England is that the ambitions that are being expressed regionally are things that are almost entirely about urban development and development along motorways and not about uh, improving the employment prospects in uh, our rural areas, which are increasingly becoming um, the kind of retirement areas for older people and where the economy is suffering somewhat in terms of being modern. Okay. Hold that question as well, for rural areas, and one here, please. Good evening. Um, my name is Alexander Kasper. I'm a master's student here at LSE. I was wondering um, whether you could explain to me why in the cohesion policy there's even very rich re um, regions getting a lot of money. So, for example, in the last planning period, there was Bavaria with about 75 million euros, um, which is one of Germany's re um, richest regions. So if it was collective European objectives, as you said before, I wouldn't see any reason why Bavaria couldn't achieve that on its own. It's got plenty of money. So why not allocating that to the really poor reasons? What is the reason for giving it to the rich regions? Isn't it maybe political chess game? Um, yeah, part of that. Thank you. The rural areas, including Bavaria. Yeah, <clears throat> to the first question... Uh, that's why, for the first time, we have uh, introduced uh, uh, what we call partnership agreement. That means we have uh, covered the, the different, if you like, structural funds. It's not only the regional development fund, the social fund, and the cohesion fund, but it's also the rural development fund and the um, fishery fund. And all five are put together and member states have to find an agreement with us and this agreement we call partnership agreement where we define the areas of investment for the different kind of funds. Um, learning our lessons from the past that there have been there and there some overlappings between the different funds but also some gray zones where neither the one nor the other one uh, uh, was uh, uh, offered any eligibility for something. And uh, this is exactly what we are discussing. For instance, we have um, rather intensive discussions when it comes to, give you an example, um, uh, broadband infrastructure investments. Uh, of course, uh, if it's in a remote rural area, uh, it should be done 
by the Rural Development Fund. If it's in a more urban area, it would be done by the Regional Development Fund. Same applies for issues like irrigation. Uh, is it uh, um, irrigation system for a rural area? It's clearly to be financed by the Rural Development Fund. If it's about uh, water supply systems, then it's clearly financed by the Regional Development Fund. This we have now clarified for the first time, and I hope uh, it will be a significant step uh, forward in order to avoid exactly what you have uh, rightly criticized. Uh, about Bavaria, um, it's a very good example, and once again, it would be politically naive to believe that uh, all our member states, all our regions are doing more or less at the same time uh, the same things in order to achieve uh, common European goals. You need, you need, if you like, brackets in order to achieve things, and you need uh, financial incentives. And Bavaria, by the way, did something, uh, um, I think, rather intelligent, because our funds offer a lot of flexibility. And one possible flexibility is not to spend the money um, around the whole country, like it is done in other regions for other good reasons. But in Bavaria, they decided in the past and also in the new financial perspective to allocate, I would say, 80% of their money to a sm uh, small part of Bavaria, and these are the regions bordering to the Czech Republic, because there they have definitely a need uh, to improve the living conditions. They face a competition to the bordering regions of Bohemia, and therefore it's important to invest exactly in that part of the country. Once again, the regulations offer a lot of flexibility in terms of uh, geographic allocation within a region. Take, for instance, Greece, uh, Greece the, uh, the, the, the islands in the Aegean Sea, there are some very rich islands and some very poor ones. All of them are belonging to the same region. It's up, it's up to the Greek authorities, and it would be rather smart to concentrate the financial means on the poorer ones, because the richer ones don't need it. And this is something which uh, the funds allow, and I think in that respect, uh, BioVaria is doing uh, a good job, but again, I recall um, it's important to have uh, a financial instrument for all our regions, but of course we have respected the idea of solidarity when it comes to the amount being allocated to the poorer ones and to the richer ones. And there is, of course, the fact that uh, the CSU is the junior partner in the German right. So we have a question here and then one over there next. No, just in, in here. Yeah. yeah, hello. Um, my name is Martin Okorego. I'm from Germany, from the city of Kiel in the northern region of Schleswig-Holstein. Um, I have two questions. One question as a European citizen and then one question as a um, young urbanist. Um, as a European citizen, um, I traveled across Europe for over five years um, and I have seen many, many changes. Um, demographic change is obviously one of the major causes. Um, there's one example, a, a farmer in the northern region in Schleswig-Holstein um, has land um, to produce uh, food, um, has the equipment, 
um, has the knowledge to produce um, um, valuable goods, but don't have any young people around him to actually take over the, the work. Um, so in 2012, in the um, European Year of Intergenerational um, Solidarity, um, I organized a creative city dialogue in the city of Southampton in the Hampshire region of England, and then um, in Kiel in Germany, to try to understand how young people actually can contribute their young, their entrepreneurial skills uh, into the, the, the European idea. This cross-border project was financed by myself. Um, so from, from a European citizen um, perspective, how can young people actually um, access the institutions and um, to A, to get money for new projects, um, but also to, um, to, to get um, expertise um, to, to make those projects sustainable. On the other, on, on the other side, um, on, the, um, on the young urbanist um, perspective, um, I hold one office in Southampton. I'm, I'm just planning my new office here in London in July. Um, and I just want to um, say that Vienna is a very, very good example of um, knowledge-based urban participation um, based on the, um, on, the, on the knowledge available in the Fünften Bezirk, for example, um, where um, knowledge is very, very keen. So how do you see um, Europeans can push a maybe knowledge-based urban development in UK cities? Thanks, sir. And the question is here, the white shirt. Thanks very much. Um, I was going to ask you a question around um, financial instruments because it was interesting. That Tell us quickly who you are as well. My name is Ken Roy Kellenek Reed. I work for the Greater London Authority, which is an intermediate body in the develop implementation of structural funds. Um, and um, the, as I said, I was going to ask about financial instruments because I found the topic quite interesting, given that I know that for this financial perspective, there's a great push towards um, investing, as you said, as opposed to providing subsidy. But I thought I'd probably ask a more controversial question, um, or at least I, in my view, I think it might be. Um, do you th foresee in the sort of next financial perspective where we'll, we'll move from multiple um, structural funds to a single structure, to a single fund um, that, will find that, that could finance any of the themes agreed? Um, because in my view that, you know, um, as I said, being involved in the implementation, it would reduce the burden, implementation burden considerably if we just had one um, fund as opposed to ERDF, ESF and all the different um, structural funds. So that's a simple question. Simplification. <laughs> you get it every day, don't you? Johannes. So the first question, first of all, thanks to the colleague from Kiel that he didn't uh, address the issue of a uh, regional airport in Kiel, which you know is still an issue. Uh, but uh, concerning uh, what you have asked, uh, there are a lot of uh, what we call cross-border uh, uh, programs, cooperation programs, and if you like, later on we can uh, give you some, some uh, names and uh, addresses uh, in order to identify what is uh, best suiting to you. Um, and um, the same applies for cooperation on the, on the, on the city level. Uh, for instance, we will, we will uh, or we have already uh, created a special budget line, which I think is 320 or 50 million. Uh, Sounds a lot. Uh, on the other hand, it's for seven years. It's uh, uh, managed, centralized, and it's uh, dedicated to uh, to promote 
pioneer projects on, on in, in cities. And this will be um, uh, awarded along uh, uh, by calls. So we will offer uh, three, four calls during the seven years asking for um, uh, cities to participate with very concrete projects which are pioneering something. And uh, the idea is to have later on an exchange about the experiences and to share the outcomes and the results and uh, the positive and negative uh, experiences. And uh, this should be a further step uh, in order to improve our performance. Uh, <clears throat> concerning the other colleague, uh, would be a great pleasure to have one fund, uh, but there is political reality. There are political traditions. I think we have made some step forwards. Uh, we have uh, made some progress. And uh, to have this partnership agreement, which covers the different funds, I think is a first step into the right direction. I'm not talking about uh, abandoning one or the other funds, but uh, I think it's about a better coordination. You need also some uh, different uh, knowledge and experience. Another, another element to overcome this uh, diversity, if you like, is that uh, now we have again introduced in our, in our regulations uh, the opportunity of a so-called multi-fund operational program, not to be too detailed, which means to cover different funds, different uh, budget lines in one operational program in order to make it easier for final beneficiaries uh, um, to, to address uh, the, the, the financial opportunities. And uh, having you here, it's good to stress that uh, in the new financial perspective, we will certainly increase the portion of uh, financial engineering instruments and the amount being used for that purpose. In the previous period, it was around 8 to 10 billions. In the new financial perspective, I hope, and I expect we can raise it up to 35 to 40 billions, depending on the market uh, situation. But uh, in particular, in the area of energy um, efficiency measures in cities, there are a lot of opportunities to offer, um, for instance, loans uh, and other similar products instead of grants, or at least to have an intelligent combination of both. Okay, well, I have two more questions. Uh, one here and then one in the blue shirt at the back, and then we'll come over here later. later. Thanks. My name is uh, Sally Nishaw, and I work with Urbact, which is the European Commission's city networking program. I wanted to come back to something that you said at the beginning, Commissioner Hahn, which was that the, in future, regional policy will be more connected to strategy and that the projects will follow strategy which I think um, is a good idea. And in the um, EU Urban Forum that took place in Brussels, there was quite a lot of discussion about the fact that in the past that hasn't been the case necessarily. And I remember, I think it was the mayor of Warsaw who, who said there had been too much money in aqua parks and airports um, and, and things that in, in fact become empty and don't create jobs and don't um, help with climate targets, and, and especially transport infrastructure, which might be the wrong kind of not future-oriented um, mobility that we need. 
So I wanted to know how the Commission can make sure that, uh, that structural funds do get spent on the right things, especially when it's the managing authorities and operational programs that are dictating that. And there seems to be sometimes a missing link between sort of bottom-up um, initiatives that cities are, are developing and, and, the, and the managing authority that maybe not be listening or doesn't have a dialogue in some regions better than others, but to make sure, how do we make sure that the money gets spent following those strategies? Gentleman in the blue shirt. And I fully uh, endorse the 70-20 principle and the geographical implications of that, both within member countries and across Europe. But the means that you have described to us seem to me to imply, uh, with the phrase, the implementation of common European objectives, seem to me to imply more central EU direction stroke guidance. <coughs> and looking at recent developments, uh, you'll be aware of complaints in the, e in the UK about over-regulation from Brussels, as is paraphrased. We now even have France in the wake of that they uh, would like to see more local decision making. And I wonder to what extent the Treaty of, of Lisbon's um, um, emphasis on subsidiarity is consistent with the direction of change in the means that you're suggesting. So I kind of therefore wonder whether or not the means, this insistence on uh, the um, consistence with common European objectives, whether that has actually is contrary to wider political change and direction across Europe, not just UK, but also Denmark, France, and so on, and whether or not, in fact, perhaps unfortunately for a well-meaning strategy, it's been overtaken by political events. If I, if I can add to that, uh, an anecdote I heard from a former Irish finance minister before the crisis who said that the main reason that Ireland had to continue to receive structural funds despite its GDP soaring was that Ireland had only been rich for a short time. Over to you. Another question? Or? No, go ahead. No. Yeah, concerning the first one, <clears throat> I mean, some of my grey hairs are due to this uh, daily struggle uh, about uh, using the money in a properly way. I mean, exactly, uh, I mean, in previous years, uh, roundabouts and heating, heated uh, public swimming pools were the, uh, the, the, the most interesting uh, investment of some of the mayors, and nowadays some, some cities like to have their own airport but this is exactly what we have to avoid. That's why we are so, so tough on these, um, uh, uh, for instance, transport strategies. Uh, so this is, it's, it's indeed no longer possible to have something which is not embedded into a strategy, uh, and which there are, <clears throat> it's no longer possible to have a standalone concept. And uh, just recently we had a very uh, tough discussion <laughs> with our Polish colleagues uh, <clears throat> about regional airports uh, in the north of the country, in, in Gdansk, and just beside, because we discovered when uh, analyzing a so-called major project uh, that there is another regional airport uh, 
uh, envisaged to be built just 20 kilometers uh, uh, beside, and this is a no-go. So finally, we found an agreement, we found a solution that it's not possible to finance both, and it's uh, clear that only one airport can be built and can serve as a public airport and so on. So this is exactly what the new policy should achieve, but I know that uh, member states are now more or less willing, uh, more or less, sometimes they ask for more flexibility, and flexibility in that respect means to do whatever they like, but this is not possible because we have uh, European taxpayers, we have a European Parliament, uh, they are looking very carefully what we are doing with the money. We have to report year by year. There's a long-lasting debate every year about the use of the money, how it is spent, is it uh, correct spent, etc. So this is part of the European public uh, interest, and therefore also from that uh, angel, if you like, uh, we had to improve the performance of the policy. Right. Let, let me interrupt there, because... Is that going to mean that in future, having two autobahns from the north to the south of, of Portugal or airports in, in Castilla, which no, which no planes fly to, are these, are these kinds of mistakes going to be avoided in future? This uh, two, two um, um, uh, motorways in Portugal is one of these... Uh, 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 um, uh, you can never destroy this myth that it's financed by the European Union. Um, this second motorway was financed by the Portuguese themselves. It's a PPP project, and uh, it's, by the way, one of these very bad projects, where, and uh, I would say not very smart one, that um, one has invested with private money, a second uh, motorway uh, parallel to an existing one, and there was, and there is, like always, a certain um, clause that if not uh, enough traffic is generated, the public has to compensate the losses. And this is the reason why Portugal has to pay year by year, uh, I, th I think, a, a very high three-digit uh, amount of uh, three-digit uh, million amount of money. Uh, but once again, in the past something happened which is not uh, acceptable. And I can tell you, we have learned our lessons. Regional airports, some of uh, ports around Europe which don't have any proper uh, connections to the hinterland, all of them are, I hope, uh, we try to do our best, something of the past. But we are fully aware about uh, the problems of the past, we have learned our lessons and we try to avoid it in the future. Okay, and the, the Irish question? The Irish question, uh, there is no contradiction. Once again, uh, it uh, were the European heads of states and prime ministers, the European Parliament, the national parliaments, which all agreed about a European growth agenda, a growth strategy. They have agreed, they have asked, and later on they have agreed about the strategy. And if you ask for that, if you finally agree about it, you have also to accept 
and I think this is part of the whole process, that you need financial instruments, financial means, to implement uh, what you have agreed and to follow up. But nevertheless, we respect the principle of subsidiarity. Otherwise, we couldn't work because it's uh, impossible uh, to manage our policy, or it would be impossible to manage our policy if we do it on a centralized basis. Only, <clears throat> only in the period 2007-2013, we will have implemented more than 2 million individual projects. So this cannot be monitored, audited, controlled by a centralized body in Brussels. This must be done on the basis of shared management in the regions and if it's a national program by the line ministries in the member states. And if it comes to the new program, of course, we have our thematic objectives, <clears throat> we have our thematic concentration, but there is a lot of freedom and flexibility for member states, for regions, to make their own tailor-made program. So they can choose from a very comprehensive menu, if you like, but they cannot take something which is out of the blue. They have to take something which is part of the menu, but there we offer a lot of opportunities. But once they have decided, they have committed themselves, they have to agree with us quantifiable results. So it's about accountability of the policy, and this is something we have to, to follow up. There is no doubt about and there is no alternative about it. Is that smart specialization? What it's, is the secret of the words? It's smart in any way. <laughs> okay, we've, we, we've... But maybe it's a kind of smart specialization in the way that this kind of uh, proceeding regional policy is something which is now... Um, there are a lot of other states around the globe which are interested in our policy. The policy we have now designed is perceived as a vanguard of that kind of policy around the world. Uh, we have a lot of, uh, of uh, interested uh, observers about the policy. There are cooperations, for instance, with China, with Brazil, even with Russia, with Ukraine, South, uh, South Africa, I uh, don't know if I have mentioned Brazil, India, yep. nowadays also the United States, which are interested how we organize our kind of uh, regional policy. So for the, the political economy of Europe students, that is what soft power means. We have two questions over here, and there's a profusion of other questions, so I'm going to take about three this time. Um, my name is Patrick Green. I'm a barrister, and I do a tiny bit of teaching at the LSE. Um, can I just ask you about this document we've all been given and the UK figures, just to try and understand uh, how it works. We've got identified for the period 2014 to 2020 11.8 billion of funding, and we can see there that 2.4 billion is for the less developed regions, 2.6 billion is for the transition regions, so a total of 5 billion for the less well-developed areas and then 5.8 billion for the more developed regions. Uh, f first of all, one immediately observes that 
The majority of that is for the more developed regions. And what's not clear to me is how is that allocation between those different types of region actually decided upon? I understand that the idea of respecting solidarity and things, but what practically is the decision-making process to reach those allocation figures? And who can we blame? Give a mic straight to your neighbour. Good evening, Commissioner. My name is Marina Wheeler. I'm another barrister, and I'm afraid another slightly lawyerish question uh, about policing uh, the use of structural and regional funds. Um, My understanding is that now, even since the focus has shifted onto uh, strategic investment, uh, the Court of Auditors still identifies quite high levels of irregularities in payments, I think up 40-odd, 47%. My question is how... It must be very difficult to police this at member state level. How do you go about trying to tackle those figures? And do you have confidence that you can um, put into place measures that will dramatically reduce those figures? Or is this, in fact, an argument, a strong argument, in favour of um, bringing the application of this sort of um, allocation of funding closer down to a national level? Are any of the others who want to ask questions also lawyers? It's not about job opportunities. So so I'll let you answer the two lawyers, and then we'll move on to other questions. I mean, coming to the first question, I mean, if you already look at this list, you will see that uh, there are much more, more developed regions than less developed regions. I'm not so intimate, familiar with, but uh, the Isles of Scilly, uh, probably there are uh, very few people living there. Uh, Probably the same applies for West Wales and the Valleys. Uh, And the allocation is clearly calculated on a per capita basis, and also within uh, the different different categories of regions, depending on the GDP level. So it's a rather complicated uh, formula, taking also into account uh, some elements of uh, employment, unemployment, etc. But the main, the main uh, calculation reference figure is uh, the GDP. Is that the Commission working that out? Yeah. On the yeah. Not the national, not... No, no, it's about well, the Commission. Let's be precise on this. It's, it's data that is generated by the UK statistical authorities, which is turned into data used by Eurostat and therefore the formula. So we are working with data provided by the member states, validated by Eurostat, and the formula is developed uh, by us. And and I'll add one wrinkle to that, which is that even inner London, which uh, Johannes said earlier was the the richest region in the EU, is a false statistic because it it takes the the GDP as a denominator – which is created by all of us who can commute in, and only the numerator is the, the population. So it's, it's a very straight... Sorry, the other way around. The, the popula- population, resident population is the denominator, and the GDP generated is the numerator. And we know very well that there are pockets of extreme poverty in inner London. So uh, beware of using these glib regional classifications. But uh, thanks for this uh, hint. I mean... Um we are not completely satisfied with uh, uh, this uh, kind of calculation method. Why? Because we only uh, use more or less um, 
um, or apply the GDP. And uh, this is something which is not satisfying uh, anybody, but I have to admit, for the moment, there was no other political agreement. I mean, there are a lot of other um, uh, possible figures and, 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 and uh, yeah. uh, how can you call it, figures or indicators? Uh, uh, indicators or criteria, you criteria. eligibility criteria. But the GDP is the only one which is accepted by all the member states. Uh, you can imagine that uh, uh, during the crisis and hopefully in the aftermath of the crisis, uh, some member states argued that we should uh, include, for instance, the unemployment uh, level into the calculation. But you can imagine there are some other member states, those having a low unemployment uh, rate, arguing it's not uh, acceptable to award, if you like, those having underperformed, having a high unemployment level, that the unemployment level is, uh, um, has an influence on the calculation of the, of the allocation. So there are a lot of uh, different aspects, and the only level we have, uh, the only figure we have so far agreed is uh, GDP, but there are working groups within the Commission with member states on the OECD level to identify alternatives uh, which might uh, apply uh, for the next financial perspective. I mean, there are alternatives already on the table, but not yet uh, politically agreed. I, mean, I should tell you as well that um, before Johannes's time, there was something called the synthetic indicator. Try explaining that to a population. <laughs> Maybe. That's an idea. But uh, uh, to the second question, first of all, we are talking about error rates, and it's important to distinguish between error and fraud, because in the public perception, everybody is uh, thinking, saying, arguing, or in particular those who are not in favor of the policy or of Europe or whatsoever, uh, it's about fraud, it's about misuse. And this is clearly not the case. Only 0.2% um, of all the errors are fraud. And if there's any indication that there might be a misuse, we immediately uh, involve Olaf uh, uh, to, to investigate and to clarify. First. Olaf is the anti-fraud office of the European Commission. Thank you. And uh, the problem is, or the challenge, however you might call it, that uh, the European Court of Auditors publish a lot of different errors. Yeah? Uh, and this 47, 49% of errors you mentioned, is simply the number of errors being detected by the court, and the huge majority of them are not quantifiable errors. So, for instance, if uh, they have not uh, properly uh, tendered um, something, a project, they have not respected a certain time frame. Or, you know, if a project is financed by European money, you have to have somewhere a little uh, uh, sign or little billboard indicating that European money has been used. If this is not there, indeed it's not a quantifiable error, but it counts as an error. So we are certainly faced with this uh, 
fact that uh, <clears throat> the court is publishing a long list of different kinds of, er of errors, and everybody takes that error uh, which he or she likes to take. The real error rate is about uh, 5 to 6 percent, and once again, it's an error. Uh, and if you take this 5 to 6 percent for 100, around uh, 40 percent of the errors are related to errors in the area of public procurement, another 20, 25 percent uh, related to eligibility. It, was it or is it eligible or not? And nowadays we are facing some problems uh, related to state aid because due to uh, rather recent uh, uh, rules by the European Court of Justice, we have to uh, check the state aid dimension in every infrastructure project, which is an additional burden. Um, many of our member states are not yet used to that, so this is uh, pretty new ground, if you like, and therefore I expect uh, in the future, in the near future, one or the other additional error. But on the other hand, we try to reduce the number of errors related to public procurement by introducing a reform, the modernized and I hope a more simplified uh, public procurement law. I think we'd, Milan, you, you had a question, I think. Uh, there are two or three in that row. So I'm afraid you've had one, so we're sh running short of time. We'll have to be very compressed now. Mil Milan in the middle there. Uh, I'm a master student uh, at the European Institute. Um, you just uh, brought up state aid, actually, and uh, I think uh, a lot of the projects which uh, structural funds are being spent on are uh, the same things as which uh, member states sometimes um, like to spend money on, but then they run into the commission who acts like the gatekeeper for um, state aid. Can you speak a little bit louder? So um, member states sometimes uh, run into state aid rules when they want to spend their own funds on similar things as structural funds are being spent on airports, come to mind, actually. Um, but I'm wondering whether the state aid rules and the structural funds allocation decisions or rules are streamlined and who, in fact, watches the watchman as for member states the commission checks, but who checks the commission in the decision-making process. That's a complicated question. To, to your right there, immediately, and then up here. Oh, hi. Yes, I'd just like to put in a more qualitative... Tell us who you are, please. Uh, my name's Jessica Lawrence. I'm a former social worker and health worker, and I have a master's in medical anthropology. And I've heard a lot about quantitative analysis and quantitative you know, deductions about how things are working and how money is allocated. But when we talk about allocating, you know, we're talking about 21 billion pounds, you know, to projects. The problem is, is that when money goes to projects, it often bypasses the people that it's supposed to reach. And, for example, in my local area, um, I can see, and that's in northwest London in Harrow, three things that would benefit the local community very much. One would be to give safe, free childcare. So families, and particularly women, are free to go back to work. The second thing is, is making sure there's a living minimum wage, which would have to be at least £10 an hour, and I think that should be supplemented by European money if people aren't achieving that and doing away with zero-hours contracts. 
And the other thing is, you know, possibly looking at something like, you know, Roosevelt's uh, New Deal in the 30s, where this money, instead of going to projects, which often doesn't benefit people in the trickle-down effect, the people you want to benefit don't benefit from them, but actually creating sustainable jobs, say, in, in uh, you know, sustainable energy in retail, and so that money goes to the people who need it rather than to projects. That's just a that statement more than a the, question. That will take us back to the redistribution versus allocation <coughs> issue. And question here, please. And we'll take a last one over here. Yeah, hello. Uh, my name's Irfan. I'm just interested to know from you that we agree that um, the immigration or the, the migration and movement of peoples from different regions and across states is, a, is somewhat of an indication of whether the distribution of the wealth is successful because if there was development in poorer regions then people wouldn't have to move elsewhere to find jobs and housing, uh, etc. Sorry, I didn't... What was the question? Is, is the distribution affecting where people live in a way which you might stop them having to migrate from, rich, from poorer regions to richer regions? And then last question here, because I do want to reserve a little bit of time at the end for non-regional policy question. Um, my name is Lee Martin and I'm a sixth form student. And um, you mentioned previously it's a similar question to uh, the lady from Harrow that asked. You mentioned about GDP being the only kind of <clears throat> agreed measure of kind of like classification of the of the development of different regions around. Um, but you did mention there are some others on the table, and so I was going to ask what, um, you know, what or how are you making sure that the various investments to these different regions are improving those other kind of indicators, if you like, because you know, there's talk around the UK at the moment that a lot of our growth is being built on non-sustainable elements, for example, not to mention a housing bubble, and secondly, um, the increase of kind of like zero-hours contracts, which actually in the long run won't do much to help the economy or development at all. Okay, a range of questions there, some of which are really British debate rather than EU debate, but uh, I'll let you try to answer. First of all, maybe this uh, um, addresses uh, some of the questions. It's important to understand... Um, philosophy structure of the funds is uh, to finance uh, uh, individual projects or one-off uh, uh, investments. So we don't finance um, running costs or we don't uh, subsidize somebody or, or something. The, this, this is a, a main principle of the policy so if it's about uh, launching something, it can be financed, but it's not about the running costs. For instance, a permanent discussions with some of our regions um, around uh, Europe and outside Europe is uh, they would like that uh, we should subsidize uh, uh, the transport costs uh, to islands, uh, the, 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 the ferry boat transport, etc. This is not possible. But what we can finance, for instance, is uh, the investments in new ferry boats, uh, cheaper ones in terms of uh, energy consumption, etc. So what we can finance is the improvement of a situation, uh, but not the permanent or, if you like, the running costs of something. This is important to understand. Uh, uh, so when the question was to invest in people, 
our understanding is if we can provide jobs, if we can uh, provide qualification, training, etc., people are benefiting from them. But it's not about financing, for instance, minimum wages. This is something which is clearly a national responsibility. Our understanding, our task is to finance uh, uh, one-off uh, activities, but with the clear idea to create something uh, sustainable. Uh, how are we controlled? I think this was the, the question, uh, the decision-making uh, process. Well, um, I think we are permanently monitored uh, by the European Parliament. That's why it was uh, important to participate in the uh, election. I, I regret uh, the, the rather uh, low participation rate, uh, not only in UK, but in many other countries. I think it's an underestimation of the relevance of the European Parliament. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, uh, um, we are controlled by the European Court of Auditors, not only our policy, but uh, the, the, the whole <clears throat> uh, use and spending of the European budget is controlled and audited by the European Court of Auditors, and they give a report to the European Parliament and uh, to the European Council. And it's not only about the financial correct use of the money, there are more and more uh, what we call performance audits. So the Court of Auditors is looking into the way we have, uh, or the member states, have used uh, the money for certain purposes. For instance, just recently we received a performance audit report about ports and regional airports, which was quite helpful to convince member states uh, to obtain from uh, uh, further uh, using uh, or spending money for that purposes. So there is, I think, a lot of uh, control mechanism. And by the way, there's a very uh, curious public and the medias, uh, of course. So I don't have any uh, concerns about the transparency of what we are doing and uh, how it is possible for people to control it. And by the way, the new financial perspective also forces us and the member state to publish our agreements, our programs, our agreements in terms of quantifiable results. Everything will be published so everybody can follow the implementation and how it uh, works out. Uh, about uh, migration, I didn't quite understand the question. Well, is, is regional policy, whether at European level or national level, doing enough to create jobs where people are as opposed to forcing them to move to get jobs? I mean, this is a, a very... It's not a complicated question, but it's a question which uh, concerns us a lot, and I, I thought I could uh, use my last year in office to deal with this question. It's about demographic changes and demographic challenges. I mean, we face in Europe the same what we face all around the world, and not only for years, but for centuries, that in principle people move into cities. And we face an increased depopulation 
between cities in Europe. And it's certainly something we have to deal with. And uh, there is no simple answer, because it depends also on the geographical situation um, of regions or member states. Give you an example from the country in Opest, Austria. Uh, we have some parts which are rather mountainous. And there is, for instance, a rather well-known uh, <clears throat> regional capital, Innsbruck, which is embedded into the Alps. And um, if you live only 30 or 40 kilometers away in a valley, it takes you one or one and a half hour to go out of the valley or to go in into the valley because it's a very narrow road. There's only one lane, and if something happens, it's, 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 uh, uh, there's a, um, uh, a traffic jam. It sometimes snows as well. Could be. But in the meantime, we have uh, improved our capacities to clean it. <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, so that means already 30, 40 kilometers is too far away to commute on a daily basis. For instance, if you take Paris, for instance, it's rather flat. There are people commuting 200 kilometers on a daily basis. Uh, <clears throat> but I think one of the solutions could be to attract device regional cities, regional towns, to be more attractive for people, for the surrounding, to stay in the region, uh, to offer attractive uh, educational facilities, uh, hospitals, things like that. Broadband infrastructure is something which is more and more important because there are a lot of job opportunities where you can share your activities between the rural area and the city, where you can do a lot in the rural area and uh, uh, offering it to cities. So there, fortunately, uh, the, the, the situation has improved, but nevertheless, it's a challenge, and we still face a move towards cities. Right. Commissioner, you cannot escape from this room without addressing one question outside your mandate. Uh, uh, on behalf of the audience, I'm going to pose it. I was already waiting for it. <laughs> there was an election last weekend which seemed to give a bloody eye to the, the European elites of which you form part. So let me put the question in two short phrases. What is the European Union doing wrong and how can it redeem itself? I think if we are fair, one should say that uh, the, the huge majority also in the new parliament are pro-Europeans. So the Eurosceptics, and uh, including those who are against the European Union, count for around 20% of the members in the parliament. We have a very um, different picture around Europe. Uh, concerning uh, the Eurosceptical parties. We have some member states where the share of Eurosceptics has declined, and we have some others where it has increased. For instance, in my country, um, uh, the Eurosceptics have decreased by 10%. Uh, why? Because I think the political elite 
has stopped uh, to bash Europe, uh, I would say, two years ago. And gradually, this has an influence on the general mood in the society and how things are discussed. So what I am asking is to have a fair communication about Europe. I, there was a hope, not only by myself, but, but uh, many people, that the European campaign could have been used to, to discuss what should be uh, decided and managed on the European level and what is not necessarily to be, to be decided or managed on the European level, which could be done on a national or regional level. In many of our member states, the European elections were used to discuss uh, national internal issues. So there was a, a missed opportunity for Europe. But nevertheless, we have still a lot of opportunities uh, to do it uh, now or to do it later. But I think at a certain moment, and I know in UK, it's a debate, it's a discussion, and I think it's good to have this discussion what should be done on a European level and what should not be done on a European level. And if we have once sorted out these questions, then we should decide how to frame it in, in an European institutional framework. And uh, I think everybody should give his or her input into the discussion. I have uh, heard that there is such a debate in UK, but I haven't seen so far very concrete proposals about that. I would be more than happy to discuss about concrete proposals. Uh, if we want have it on the table, we can discuss about it. But for the moment, there's only a vague idea there should be less Europe. We can discuss about everything. But if we would like to survive in a more globalized world, we should be aware that we have to work together. Europe, all together, we are only 7% of the world population. But we are still able to contribute 22-23% to the world economic uh, uh, outcome. And by the way, we finance 50% of the world social uh, protection, budget. Protection. Huh? Social huh? protection. Social protection. But I'm not uh, criticizing that. Uh, it's something uh, we should be proud that we are able to guarantee people if they are jobless, if they are old, <laughs> if they are poor, some, um, some uh, um, financial means to survive. We guarantee rule of state, rule of law. Uh, we don't need death penalty. Uh, we have a freedom of expression. So we have a lot of uh, things for which we are adored by others. Um, and once again, to survive in a more globalized world, it's necessary to work together. But we have to discuss how to organize it. And it's a permanent working process. We will never have completed this. I'm not talking about any completion of Europe. It's a permanent working progress. And we have to discuss always, after some years, is it still the right setting? Have we 
is it necessary to improve the situation, to change it, or whatsoever. But I think we should do it in a fair manner. We should do it uh, respecting the different societal backgrounds in Europe. And if we are doing this, I'm quite confident that we will find a solution which covers all the different interests, the different uh, ideologies, and the different uh, national backgrounds. But I can only plead to learn more about Europe. One of our difficulties is that there is a very uh, little knowledge about Europe by all of us. Europe is extremely different. Europe is challenging. Europe is very colorful. And I believe it's Europe's strength to have this variety of ethnics, of uh, people, of individuals, which makes us so strong and which will guarantee that Europe and each of the member states of the Union will play an important role also in the future. But it's about us to work together, to stand together, and uh, to follow our common European values. Okay, well, that sounds like a suitably positive note on which to end. I hope, trust you will join me in thanking the Commissioner for his uh, excellent speech, <coughs> answers to questions, and you, the audience, for giving us such a lively debate. Thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs>